Wow, this is uh, week two of your, your conference month. Uh, that's so excited. It's such a joy to be able to share the word with you this morning. And uh, I want to start by just asking this question. Um, do any of you ever get anxious about missing out on something? All right. The, the millennial term for this is FOMO. All right, FOMO. If you're not familiar, FOMO is fear of missing out. All right, do any of you have a serious case of the FOMO? It's okay. You can raise your hands. This is a safe place. I love you, okay? All right, a few of you. Yeah, my wife has a self-diagnosed chronic case of the FOMO, okay? I mean, if she's afraid that people are having fun and she's not there, she just starts to bounce around the house and freak out, okay? FOMO or fear of missing out is that anxiety you get that something amazing is happening without you present, all right? Uh, in the, a popular television show I watched a lot in college, uh, there was an episode about a guy they nicknamed The Blitz, okay? And they called him The Blitz because um, every time he left the room, something amazing happened. He was always missing out on something incredible. They could be having a totally normal night, just casually hanging out, a boring night, and then The Blitz would get up and leave early, and immediately something epic would happen, all right? An impossible, once-in-a-lifetime story you will tell the rest of your life would happen the moment the guy left the room. For years, for years, the Blitz was doomed to live a life where legendary moments happened when he wasn't around. If you have FOMO, this guy personifies your worst nightmare, all right? Now, I'm not going to mention the television show I'm referring to because there is no quicker way to divide a group of people you are speaking to than to mention television, all right? So I'm not going to reveal to you where it is, but this morning, I do want to talk a little bit about missing out, a little bit about missing out, a little bit about forfeiting what might have been if only you had done something different. In the season my wife and I are, are currently in, we spend a lot of time talking about the call that God has, has put on our life to go serve overseas, this call that we received at a young age. Uh, my wife, Heather, received this call at age six, and I came along uh, later at the, at the old age of 11 to hear this call from God. And uh, ever since, we have been pursuing that call. And, and finally, uh, at this moment, that, that realization is, is just on the horizon. It, it's right there. We can see it. We can taste it. Uh, finally, we're, we're getting close. And this season of preparation that God has had us in has taken some perseverance. Uh, it's taken some sacrifices. We've been down roads with God. We, we never thought we'd go down, and we have waited longer. Uh, we have waited longer than we possibly thought we could ever wait, ever wait in our time. Uh, but now, finally, we're here. We're right on the edge of it, moving overseas next year, finally officially appointed two weeks ago. Wow. Uh, we are so excited for what God has for us in Central Asia. Well, uh, in reflecting on the call, in reflecting on this season, there has been a lot of good counsel and thought as to counting the cost of obedience. Counting the cost of obedience, meditating on um, what you'll need to, to sacrifice, what you might have to give up to follow God where he's leading. Okay, and, and that's some good advice. Luke chapter 14 speaks on this idea, and uh, we, we do. We need to weigh carefully uh, what it will cost us to follow Jesus, the cost of discipleship. 
This is critical. Uh, But in the midst of that, my mind has been repeatedly drawn to the counterpoint, to the other side, to the question, what would it be the cost if I were to disobey? What might we miss out on if we were to ignore the call? If next week I determined that I had better things to do than to follow God where he led, um, what will be the consequences? What is the cost of disobedience? What is the cost of disobedience to the call? In the Bible, there are many examples of those who were called by God but then disobeyed. And over the past few months in my readings of the scripture, I have paid special attention to those cases. And in the study of them, I've I've become aware both of the, the great joy to be gained in the daring steps of faith that he calls us to, but I've also become aware of the great cost to those who turned away and never turned back. This morning, we're going to look at just one of those cases. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to start there, and we're going to cover, um, cover track the story all the way through chapter 14 this morning. We're not going to read the entirety of those texts because then the time would be done and the children's ministry would be pounding on the doors saying, hey, come get your kids. Uh, but we're going to track the story along through these chapters and then uh, speak on it a little. Uh, the context for this is that this is following David's rule on the throne in Israel. And then the first few chapters in, in 1 Kings talks about the glory of Solomon's temple and the glory of his reign. Uh, but starting in chapter 11, the book of Kings turns from uh, the glory of Solomon's reign, the glory of the temple, it turns instead to Solomon's tragic downfall and all the consequences of it. You see, God had determined to discipline David's descendants for Solomon's betrayal, but also to remain faithful to that covenant forever. Uh, But this sermon this morning isn't actually about Solomon, believe it or not. Uh, In the midst of this text, in the midst of Solomon's downfall, an intriguing figure emerges. God raises up this interesting character, one who might just offer a a glimmer of hope for the spiritual life of Israel in this time of great darkness. Sadly, the call given is not going to be answered as it ought to be. And so follow along with me as I read through the critical parts of the story of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the first king over northern Israel, as we track his promising rise and then the heartbreak of his disobedience with all of its consequences. Let's read, starting in chapter 11, verse 28, and just follow along with me. 11, verse 28, and we'll read down through 40 for starting. It says this, The man Jeroboam was very able And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces." 
And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I have chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes." But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your souls desire. And you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Turn with me now to chapter 12, starting in verse 20, and we'll read down to verse 30. Down to verse 30. And when all Israel, this is some years later when Rehoboam is ruling, And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, uh, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to sacrifice in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people as far as Dan to be before one." 
We're going to go to chapter 13, verses 33 through 34. Follow along with me. We're getting somewhere, I promise, okay? It says in verse 33, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Sometime later, in the course of time, uh, Jeroboam the king's son became very sick. And so he sent his wife to Ahijah, the prophet, to find out what would happen to their son. And in chapter 14, verses 7 through 16, we receive the response from the prophet, and with it we receive the cost of Jeroboam's disobedience to God. The last passage we're going to read, chapter 14, starting in verse 7, okay? It says this, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that was right in my eyes, but you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images. Images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone." Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and will root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates, because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, opening your word, Lord, hoping to hear from you. God, I pray that you would meet with us in this place, and that as we meet with you, God, we would be changed forever by an encounter with you, the all true, the one true, the living God of heaven. Father, I pray that you would rebuke us where we need rebuke, correct us where we need correction. For those of us who need strength and encouragement and hope, give us these things in your word this morning. But God, do not let our hearts leave this place unchanged or unchallenged by your living word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Whenever I'm preaching more than one sermon in one day, I say, don't sing all the songs. You'll, you'll lose your voice. But man, they were so good. I couldn't help myself. I'm about ready to walk through a brick wall right now after that last one. Man, that was awesome. Well, 
I know that was a lot of text this morning, a lot of text to grapple with, but I really wanted you to track the story with me of this man, Jeroboam. Uh, today, I'm not going to cover every last detail of, of this passage, but I want to offer some observations, some reflections on all that God offered Jeroboam, and with it, all that was lost when he disobeyed instead. For the next few minutes, I'm just going to retell the story and exposit some of this text. That's what we're going to do right now. And then following that, I I do have three points which reflect the timeless principles found in the story and and then some application at the end. All right? You can track with me along as we move forward. Uh, As Solomon fell uh, from his, his, his high place, first into opulence and then into idol worship, Uh, God really could have chosen many different paths towards discipline against the house of David. I mean, God could have done many things, but what he chose was to divide the kingdom of Israel. He chose to divide it due to their idolatry. He chose to divide it uh, north and south, Jerusalem and Samaria, the kings of David's lines in the smaller kingdom in the south, and the kings of, well, at least initially, the kings of Jeroboam's line up there in the north in Israel. Uh, This is what God chose to do as discipline for Solomon's disobedience to his call. In chapter 11, we read about God sending the prophet Ahijah to this young man, Jeroboam. Uh, Jeroboam was not of the tribe of Judah. He's of the tribe of Ephraim. And he's really quite a nobody. I mean, he's kind of a good manager, but he's not anyone super special. But God sends to him a message. Uh, Not just any message, a grand message. In fact, perhaps the grandest message, the greatest message, God... Uh, sends him a grand message of an offer to Jeroboam to become king of his people, to become king of the northern kingdom made up of the ten tribes of Israel. I mean, come on, what an offer, right? Jeroboam had no right or claim to the throne. I mean, he was kind of a good manager, but he was no prince of Judah. He wasn't connected to royalty. And yet God comes to this man to offer one of the greatest offers ever offered in the history of all great offers with offerings. Okay? It's a great offer. If this was on Shark Tank, it'd go viral on TikTok the next day, okay? I can see the heading on the YouTube video. Shark Tank, greatest offer of all time, okay? Uh, It would be incredible. Uh, It would go viral. In chapter 11, verses 37 through 39, God offers to place Jeroboam on the throne. He offers to give him great success and grandeur as a king. And then look closely at verse 38. This is just incredible. If you're an Old Testament kind of scholar or Old Testament student, this will blow your mind. In verse 38 of chapter 11, God offers to give Jeroboam a dynasty like he gave to King David. Wow. God offers to give him all of the protection and all of the privileges that come with it. And God offers to give Jeroboam a dynasty to rule and serve as a parallel kingdom to the kingdom of Judah until that future day comes for God to restore David's throne over all of Israel as he promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
God promised Jeroboam a blessed and God-ordained stewardship over the kingdom of the ten tribes to the north. A rule that would last for generations to come. A rule that would only be supplanted in the far future on that day where that special descendant of David came to rule over the throne of David, which is the throne that God's son is going to rule over forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, come on, what an offer, right? Jeroboam is kind of a nobody, okay? He's kind of an insignificant uh, figure, and God comes to him and offers to him to be God's champion, to be God's leader, God's king over God's people. God is offering Jeroboam one of the grandest and noblest purposes and positions ever offered. It's a big mission. It's, it's the grand job. It's the best one ever offered. And not only does God offer Jeroboam the right to this throne, the right to this seat, more than that, God offers to do all the work too. Jeroboam doesn't have to plot or plan or scheme to get the throne. God says that he'll do it all. He'll make it happen. He'll arrange it. And that's precisely what happened. In chapter 12, verse 15, and then in verses 20 through 24, uh, some years later, in 931 BC, God gave Jeroboam the kingship over the ten tribes without spilling a single drop of blood on the ground. Wow. God in his providence, God in his strength made it happen. Jeroboam didn't even have to do anything. He just had to show up, and God made it that, that, that he became king over all Israel. Uh, the king of uh, Rehoboam, the king of Judah, raised this big army to go retake the throne, and God sent a prophet to say, nope, you don't do that. This is from me, not from man. And the king of Judah listened and didn't even start a civil war over the throne. God did all of it. God made Jeroboam king. And now, Jeroboam the king, sitting on the throne over the, 12 of, over the 10 tribes, given that position by God, is now sitting on the throne, ready to fulfill all the hope that we presented back in chapter 11. Sitting on the throne, ready to be that faithful, godly leader that God had called all those years before in the wilderness. He's ready. He's called. He's in that position. At this point in the story, I'm kind of an optimist, okay? I'm kind of a happy guy. At this point in the story, I really like to close my eyes and imagining a beautiful, happy ending to this story, just for my own sake, okay? Maybe some of you are like that. I like to imagine a happy, wonderful ending to this story where Jeroboam is exactly who God intended him to be, that in this imaginary scenario that Jeroboam and his descendants lead for generations with zeal and devotion over God's people, and that someday when the restoration does come, they bow as they willingly hand the keys back to the heir of David, back to the king of kings. And at that day when they did that, when they handed back over the keys, God spoke to them and said, well done, good and faithful servants. I mean, God would give them an honored place in the kingdom where their family would be honored forever as those who stepped into the gap and served as God's faithful stewards for generations after generations and led God's people in the worship of the one true God. 
Man, what a story that would have been, huh? We would have been talking about the family of Jeroboam with, with richness and with honor for thousands of years to come. It's a grand dream. It's a pleasant thought, but tragically, it's not the reality. Instead, in, chapters, uh, in chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, we get the actual story. The story of how Jeroboam's fear and Jeroboam's doubt led him to abandon true worship. God had miraculously given Jeroboam the throne. And now, just a short time later, he is so afraid of losing it, despite God's promises, that he builds his own temples and installs idols so that people will worship there in Bethel and in Dan rather than going to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. This was a grave transgression. This was a profanity against what is ultimately sacred. And with an ironic twist, which I'm sure a lot of you uh, caught on to, okay, this, this is just so blatantly obvious, uh, with an ironic twist, the idols that Jeroboam chose to place in these new temples are none other than golden calves. I'm like, a little on the nose, man. Couldn't you have gotten a little more creative with that? Come on. It's Israel's oldest temptation. It's Israel's oldest idol. One of the commentators make a, makes a comparison with the book of Exodus. He said that God had called Jeroboam to be a new Moses, a new leader for his people, and instead they received another Aaron, another leader fallen short of the grand call that God had given how sad. In chapter 14, the consequences are laid out against him. Chapter 14 is filled with these terrible prophecies of judgment and destruction. Worst of all, they're not only laid on Jeroboam, but also on the people that he had been tasked with leading. I think chapter 14, verse 16 is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. It says, God will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. God handed Israel up. Israel will now experience the strong discipline of the hand of God. Generation after generation following Jeroboam will turn from the true worship and will remain far from their God, their Savior, their, uh, their, their leader. The worship of the one true God is almost abandoned entirely in Israel in the north. This is the same people that just a generation earlier had come to Solomon's temple to worship with zeal and with passion the one true God. And just now, one short generation after, they begin this legacy of unfaithfulness and idolatry. The person to blame, the leader in their idolatry, the leader in their apostasy is Jeroboam, this king. Well, as far as Jeroboam and his family, the hammer falls rather quickly. In chapter 15, verses 25 through 31, uh, Jeroboam's son and heir, King Nadab, rules only two short years before a rebel named Basha rises up, overthrows him, and kills all of Jeroboam's family to end his line forever. God came in judgment 
on him and his family. Jeroboam, however, is not quickly forgotten. A lot of times in the Bible, after this kind of rise and fall, you never hear the character's name again in all of Scripture. Not so for Jeroboam. Jeroboam does indeed have a legacy. In the rest of the book of Kings, whenever God wants to describe an evil king that led the people astray, this is what God says. He says, the king was evil, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. He traded what could have been a legacy of faithfulness for a legacy of fraud, for a legacy of sin, for a legacy of rebellion. Oh, what might have been. What might have been. Church, there is a great cost to disobedience. When we have received a call and a commission from the Almighty God and then abandoned that call in rebellion and disobedience, there is a great cost. This story that I'm reading to you is a warning. It's a rebuke. It's a check on our hearts when we're tempted to go astray. I, kinda, I know that this is rather an odd missions conference sermon, okay? I get that. I'm like, has any, any guy ever come to your conference and opened up Jeroboam? Probably not. Okay. Uh, but again, in, in this season of joy and celebration, as, as my wife and I come near to this transition, uh, it's been stunningly appropriate to us as a warning, as a check for our hearts. As we approach this last step of our season of preparation, we approach the first step of this call that God put on our life to go, to go where he called us, to go where he led us, a call that we have carried on in anticipation for so long. And my wife and I, we rejoice in what's coming. We're so excited. I, I, I don't know if you could pick up on it if you were here last night, but we're just a little excited about what God's about to do, okay? We're just a little enthusiastic. Uh, and we are. We're rejoicing. We're so excited to go. But, but it's also important to take time to meditate on what would be lost if we turn back now. What would be lost? What would be the cost if we turn back now? I think there are three things lost in the story of Jeroboam, uh, which I also believe could be lost if we failed now, if we turn back now. And I think for each one of you who believe and are called by God, I think these three things are equally at risk for you. Things that could be lost if you refused in your own call to follow through on what God has entrusted to each one of you, his servants. And so I just want to cover these three things briefly as we start, as we start to wrap, wrap up. I was ordained Baptist, so that means absolutely nothing when I say I'm about to start to wrap up, but... I'm on page five of nine, so, you know, we're getting there. All right. Cost of disobedience, the first thing. I think from this passage we learn that disobedience will deprive you of your purpose. Disobedience will deprive you of your purpose. Uh, I'm someone that absolutely loves to study history. 
okay? Uh, I, love, I love reading history. I'm reading a cool biography on Henry Hudson right now. Uh, you can talk to me about it later. Don't get me distracted, okay? Uh, and as someone who loves to study history, all right, there's, there's kind of a sense of this grand drama playing out in my head whenever I reflect on everyday life, okay? Um, uh, maybe it's a little vain. I hope not. But I find myself thinking at times with each season and each year that goes by what my life life would look like measured out on the pages of a biography like the ones I buy at the bookstore or, or borrow from the library, like what that, would, what that would look like. By the way, um, if you like books, I have to give up most of my library before I move. It's a great pain and tragedy of my life. It's the sacrifice. So uh, if you want to drive up to New York and get some, with tears and wailing, I will give some of them to you, but uh, that's an offer that stands. Anyways, um, I wonder what my life would look like, what, what the decades would look like in that biography. Now, now, I promise I have given up on any kind of like Alexandrian rise to power or Napoleonic ambitions that my brother and I fantasized about as kids, but I do find myself wondering if in the end, all of this, all of this stuff, all of these paths that God has had us on are leading up to some great adventure story. That in the end, there will be a purpose to my life, a purpose to what God has been doing. Uh, that as we pour out a faithful life, that there will be left something tangible behind for the glory of God here on the world when we're done. Uh, I, I'm 29, I'm turning 30 next year, and uh, maybe I'll give up these kinds of thoughts then, but at least for this last year of my 20s, okay, this last gasp of youth, I'm like clinging to this idea with my grip, okay? I, I want to still dream of a big story. I want to have a grand adventure for God with my life. You see, God had given Jeroboam all of the prerequisite ingredients for a life with a big and grand story. At the beginning of the story, when God first found Jeroboam, his life was getting ready for a footnote, all right? To me, that history guy, a footnote life sounds miserable, all right, I want, the main, I want to be the main character, not the footnote. Anyways, uh, all right, he was headed for a footnote kind of life. It would have said like, Jeroboam managed Solomon's workers, and then he died. Maybe if we wanted to get really fancy, we could add some adjectives in there to spice it up. But come on, how spicy are adjectives? I, they're a part of grammar, all right? Grammar's not spicy, all right? Then when God met him and called him and, and offered him this offer and established him on the throne, Jeroboam was now on the precipice of greatness. Jeroboam was set up to live with such purpose and such meaning and such satisfaction and such adventure that people would talk about it literally for millennia to come. He was on the precipice of a legacy, on the precipice of something legendary, of something incredible. And instead, he trades all of that. He trades all of that glory that could have been. He trades all of that in to be known as a fraud, to be the measure of a failure for Israelite kings. It's the cost of his disobedience. 
Now, I don't know if I'm headed for an interesting biography or not. It's not really important. Uh, it's not what I'm aiming for. But I do know one thing that's true for both you and for me, that the only purpose that matters in this life is the purpose of following the call and commission of God on your life. It's the only thing that matters. The only meaningful thing, the only lasting thing, the only thing that counts for something is to spend your life poured out and persevering and surrendered for what God has commanded for you to do. Everything else falls short. And in this thing is a, is a sober reflection. In this idea is a sober reflection that the cost of disobedience to the call of God on our life, the cost of turning it away from the call and the commission, the cost of not picking up the phone, the cost of disobedience is to live life devoid of the purpose that you were created to have. Thought alone kind of makes my skin crawl. I mean, to sacrifice purpose, to sacrifice satisfaction, to come to the brink of the richness and joy of life spent with God and then to throw it all away in exchange for cheap toys and false security and the illusion of peace that isn't really peace at all, to throw everything that God offered away for these cheap things, it's the most terrifying thought in the world. I mean, I weep for Jeroboam, I really do, but I'm so grateful for the warning. To me, his life is like a warning shot across the bows. It's a wake-up call. For me, it screams out to me, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't disobey. Don't abandon the call. At least, at least for me, this thought, this thought about life without purpose, it's enough. It's enough for me to plunge my life into the call. Church, don't sacrifice your purpose. Obey the call. Follow God in the commission. Follow God where he's leading in his mission and you will find satisfaction and meaning and purpose in this, in following God wherever he takes you. There is purpose. Don't give that up. Hmm. Number one, disobedience will deprive you of your purpose. Number two, Disobedience will harm those you are called to serve. Disobedience will harm those you are called to serve. This is kind of a big one. Uh, besides discipline for Solomon's idolatry, the division of the kingdom in Jeroboam's time had a secondary purpose, okay? It was mainly meant as discipline to bring Solomon's heart and his descendants back to God, but it had the secondary purpose of preserving the spiritual life of Israel as a whole, all right? According to chapter 11, Solomon's wives had brought with them every false god of the nations around them, and in weakness, he began to worship idols alongside of them. And he led Israel, he led Judah into the worship of these idols as well. Jeroboam was set up by God to be the opposite, okay, to be the contrast, to be the, 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 the thing, the polar opposite of, of Solomon. 
He was meant to be the leader of Israel into a new golden age of worship and zeal for the name of God and for his word and for his glory. Jeroboam was meant to be, to be God's man in Israel for God's people. And instead he abandoned all of that by introducing idols back into their life of worship. God not only punishes the king for his idolatry, but God also punishes the people. In chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, God prophetically reveals the spiritual decline and fall of Israel. After Jeroboam, there will be not one God-fearing king ruling from that throne in Samaria. Not one. None even come close to being a God-fearing king. And as the kings lead, the people follow. And the people follow these awful kings in its 200 years history. They follow these kings into gross idolatry and all the wickedness and all the disgusting practices that came with it. They're too graphic to reveal in this company this morning the depravity and the depths to which this sin will fall to. Finally, as prophesied here in 722 BC, after God's patience and God's prophets, after warnings and rebukes, after God does everything to reach these people and they stubbornly refuse to hear, God will send the Assyrians to judge the betrayal with the sword. The cost of Jeroboam's disobedience was the soul of Israel itself. Church, I, I firmly believe in two New Testament truths, okay? I want to break this down carefully, okay? I, I firmly believe, based on the testimony of Scripture, that God is sovereignly at work to bring all nations to himself and that nothing will stop him. This I believe. This is the testimony in Genesis chapter 12. This is the testimony of Psalm 110 to the grand finale in Revelation chapter 7. God assures us that he will indeed accomplish his mission on earth. At the throne at the end, there will be people of every tribe and nation and tongue worshiping at the throne and nothing will stop God from accomplishing that mission. Amen? I mean, I couldn't do what we're doing. We couldn't go where we're going if we didn't believe in that call, that God is providentially at work bringing people to himself. Amen? If I get to come back, maybe I'll share that really good encouraging message about that next time. Sound good? Yeah, okay, cool. Okay, I believe that, and I hold to it. It's true. But mysteriously, mysteriously, there's this second truth that the mission of God on earth is temporally dependent on the obedience or disobedience of the people of God. The missional shortcomings of Israel in the Old Testament and Romans chapter 10 verse 14 seem to indicate this truth that our disobedience, our disobedience to the call and commission of God can hurt the advancement of the Great Commission into the places that God desires us to go. That our failures to obey have consequences for the people we're called to reach. 
I'm kind of comfortable with this tension. I, I hope you are too. If you have more questions about it, ask Pastor Jeff. He'll have all your answers for you. Okay, he loves that stuff. Um, but, but this tension's there, all right? This tension is there between these two things. I don't want to go too far into depth on it, but I do want to say this. I love the history of what God has done in the world in the last 200 years, and I've studied it in almost every foreign mission field where there's converts. That first generation of believers almost always has the same question for their dear missionary friends. Their question is, why did it take you so long to come? You've had this message for 2,000 years. Why did it take you so long to get here? Our disobedience to the missional call of God on our life will harm the people to whom God has called us. And it will harm the people that we are to serve as examples and as leaders as we lead them into the work. It'll harm the generations after us who watch us as we answer the call. They'll watch us. And if we disobey, if we fall short of that call, we'll fail them too. If we desert our post, we will indeed do harm to the mission. This is true on a personal level for each one of you. The people around you that God has called you to reach, this is true to, for you as a church in your community. This is true on a citywide level for you. And this is true even on a national and even on a global level. The cost of our disobedience is the souls of those who God has called us to reach. The cost of our disobedience can have consequences for all eternity. When God calls, answer the call. When God sends you, answer the call and go where he calls you to go. Answer the call and then watch what God will do in the community that he has called you to reach. Watch what God does. Answer the call. Well, disobedience will deprive you of your purpose. That one was pretty big, pretty bad. Disobedience will harm those you are called to serve. These are grave consequences. Somehow I still think the third one is the worst. Disobedience will cost you the richness of intimacy with God. Disobedience will cost you the richness of intimacy with God. Jeroboam's disobedience to God brought down the judgment of the Lord on his head as God cut off his descendants completely. Jeroboam in his time had shattered his relationship with God. In chapter 11, verse 38, God had invited him into intimate fellowship just as David had enjoyed. He invites him into that. But now in chapter 14 and 15, only judgment is to be found. Jeroboam had forfeited the greatest prize of all. Jeroboam had forfeited his greatest treasure, his greatest gift ever given. Jeroboam had forfeited the, the gift of knowing and being known by God, our creator. He sacrificed intimacy with God. Now we know 
and we believe that the nature of our salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means that we who believe can never be separated from the love of God. Amen? These are my Baptist roots coming out. Oh boy, I got to get more alliancy. All right? But it's okay, okay? Uh, this is true. Yes, we, we hold on to this. We believe this. Romans 8 makes it clear that by the atoning blood of the Lamb and by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, there can never be condemnation for a believer anymore. This is a, a great truth. We rest on this. We hope on this, okay? We, we can't earn God's love and we, we, we can't run to receive his condemnation. We're saved by grace through faith, and I hope you have that assurance of faith. I hope you have that assurance that nothing can separate you from the love of God. I don't want to shake that from you for a second, okay? But with that being said, even as believers, even as those sealed and secured in Him, we, we, by our rebellion, can stray and experience distance from God. We can stray and rebel and experience the pain and the fear and the angst of a life without the constant presence of the peace of God. I don't know anyone, I don't know anyone who has ever walked away from the call who has had a better life after they left. In fact, I have several dear friends. Dear friends, friends that I served alongside. Friends that we did gospel work together. Friends that we labored uh, alongside. Friends that I sacrificed alongside. Friends that I, 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 I cherished. Friends that I saw God work through. I have friends who did great things for God who have now walked away from the call. And in doing so, they have began to write themselves a tragedy in their wandering. And the longer and the further that they run, the more pain they bring into their life and into the life of the other people around them as they rebel, as they disobey, as they leave the call. I have never, I have never met anyone who walked away from the call and lived a better life after than the one they were living when they were following the mission. Church, if you have Christ, Christ will never let you go. That's a deep truth, right? But if you have Christ and you run from him after knowing him, that road of running can only lead to grief and pain. That's a cost I'm not willing to pay. And while our God is quick to restore us when we come to repentance, if, you, if you're hearing me talk and you go, man, I've been running, and you're here this morning because you've been running for so long and your life, there's pain in your life, I want to give you the good truth that, that God loves prodigals and God our Father is here to welcome you home. So come home if you're the wanderer. Come home, God is here to restore you. Uh, and I love that truth, uh, but I'm here this morning to, to warn us that, that, that God is quick to restore us and while that's true, that, that if we run from him, I think we might forfeit the fresh intimacy and experience of God that we might have had if we had followed instead of fled. Now you can miss out on something grand and glorious and beautiful. You can miss out on that special intimacy with God. 
We compromise ourselves when we disobey the call. Well, there it is. A three-point sermon, the cost of disobedience, an Old Testament example on a grand scale, the principles of personal cost, they're staring down each one of us. You guys invited me here this weekend to be part uh, of, your, of your conference on, on the grand, Great Commission, on what God is, is doing in the world. And uh, my wife and I have been called, and we've had that call confirmed. And now by His grace alone, we, we seek to obey that call. We seek to go where He has lead. And, and I pray and I invite you to pray uh, with us that God would keep us from falling. All right? This passage is for me. I invite you to pray for us that God would keep us from falling by his grace. I don't want to pay that cost. Uh, While I'm thinking about this cost of disobedience, I'm often forced to think about the other side of it also. What you get in return for obeying the call. What you receive from God when you answer. What you receive from God when you make those small sacrifices. What you get in return. And I think I have an answer that satisfies my soul. It's this. When you answer the call. When you obey the commission. When you make those small sacrifices. When you persevere and when you go where he leads. And you follow his path. What you get in return is this. What you get is to see and experience God Almighty doing impossibly incredible things. You get to see God at work in the call. And oh man, the glimpses that I've seen in my life already make me hungry and thirsty to see God begin to do so many more normal miracles in the lives of people that he changes as he changes their life. I'm ready to see God do incredible things. I think this is the reward for the call. And as you see God do incredible things, there's a special intimacy with him, a special knowledge of him as you follow him there. Church, I'm up here this morning telling you, I I don't know you, okay? I've gotten to know some of you. I've enjoyed uh, meeting you. You guys have been so warm and so welcoming and so friendly, and, and I've rejoiced in the time we've had together so far this weekend. And I, and I rejoice in that. But, but really, I just flew in on Friday. I don't know your stories. I don't know your pains and your hurts. And I don't know what God has done in your life. And I, I, I don't know you, but I, I know this about you. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, I know for certain that God has called you. If you've put your faith in him, God has called you. And he has called you to participate in his mission to bring all peoples to himself. That is a universal call to all believers. God has called you to make disciples of all nations. God has called you to build up his church. God has called you to serve rather than to be served. God has called you to send and God has called you to go. God has called you to pray and God has called you to practice. God has given you a call. God has called you. That's why we're still here. That's why it doesn't take us the minute we believe because God has called you to the mission. And in this call, in this call that God has on your life, in this call is the purpose 
and the power and the presence of God Almighty. And so I only have one question for you this morning. Perhaps the most important question that you'll receive. The question is, will you hear and obey the call? Will you hear and obey the call? Or after all of this, are you still willing to pay that cost of disobedience? Let's pray. Father God, we're here this morning only because of your Son. We rejoice in his grace upon grace. We rejoice in the sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We rejoice in the power of his resurrection by which we are saved. We rejoice in the intimacy we have with you, God, our Father. We rejoice. God, we know that we are called. We know that you have called us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices and to live on mission for you. You have called us to go and make disciples. God, I pray that we would answer the call. I pray that everyone here who loves you and is trying to follow you, God, I pray that they would answer the call today. And in the answering, Lord, I pray that you would work mighty things through them in this community and in the world beyond. And God, I pray that they would get to experience intimacy with you as they walk with you in your mission and in your purpose. God, please bless this church. God, please bless these people. Draw close to them, be near. And I pray this in your name, amen.